Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We have a few topics for you today. Our first topic will be a roundup of the Pixel C reviews. This is uh, Google's new own brand tablet that they've just released and reviews for which came out this week. Uh, decidedly mixed, I think is the best way to put it. Um, and we'll talk about those and what that signifies more broadly as well. Our question of the week this week is all about uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife's plan to give away the vast majority of their Facebook shares um, to philanthropic efforts. And our question is really, is what Zuckerberg and his wife are doing really philanthropic? And Aaron has an interesting background um, that will bring to bear on that subject. Uh, it's a subject that he uh, spends a lot of time working on as a, as a professor. So um, that will be our question of the week and our second topic today. And then our third topic will be news that broke this morning, Wednesday morning as we're recording this, um, which is about Apple temporarily shelving its plans for a TV service. It's something we've talked about a little bit before, but we want to do a deeper dive on that at the end of the episode. And then we'll wrap up as usual with our weekly pick. So let's kick off with the, the Pixel C reviews. Um, John Gruber linked to about three of these in, on the Daring Fireball blog today, um, just kind of summarizing. And I think it's a decent summary. It obviously comes from a particular perspective coming from him. Uh, but essentially, the summary seemed to be the hardware is really nice. Um, there are one or two issues here or there. Um, but that there's still a huge issue around tablet-optimized apps, um, something that Android has kind of struggled with ever since the Motorola Zoom tablet launched um, a number of years ago now. So, uh, Aaron, what was your take in, in looking through some of those reviews? I, I, th I think I was pretty surprised by um, the how impressed people were with the hardware. I mean, Google doesn't have extensive hardware design experience, and people were were genuinely impressed, and I was too. I mean, as I read the reviews, I thought, yeah, that is that's like physically nicely designed, and and I was surprised that Google was as good at that as they were on this product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You've seen Microsoft now come out with you know the latest Surface and then also the Surface Book, and the Surface Book's kind of divisive because it's got some interesting design elements. But you know, from a hardware quality perspective, that's really good too. And so, you know, these two other companies, neither of which really have a heritage in hardware design, both really getting quite good at designing premium hardware at this point. Um, and yet, the major criticisms of this Pixel C device seem to be the software side of things, and especially that the way that apps work on Android, and, and that that still feels like it's missing there. Right. I, you know, one thing that's, I guess, a thought that's surprising to me about the Pixel C's physical design being as good as it is, um, is that it feels like software should be easier than hardware. I mean, it feels like right. if, if you have two companies competing and one's really good at hardware and the other's really good at software, it feels like the hardware company should have an advantage because software would be an easier skill to pick up, you would think. Mm -hmm. um, but that hasn't really played out that way with both Microsoft and Google. They, they've been moving, you know, they've been moving more into hardware and and have actually done pretty well. I mean, I think Microsoft had a rougher time out the gate hardware-wise yeah, than Google has had. Sure. Yeah. But uh, it hasn't taken them very long to get up to speed hardware-wise. Um, that said, you know, it's interesting because, you know, uh, it's all in the details when it comes to physical design, and there seem to be tiny little things that bugged the reviewers, like the keyboard detaching, you know, in a certain way, or, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, other little things like that that make a big difference in day to day use. It right. can be the tiniest physical design flaw mm -hmm. that can ruin an otherwise great one. 
So. Or a tiny, tiny physical element that makes it really delightful as well. You know, and you've talked in the past about an old Apple laptop that you had with a little magnetic clasp and so on and how much you enjoyed that, even yeah. though from a functional perspective, it made very little difference. It was sort of delightful. It was cool. Uh, it can go either way for sure. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, but, so, um, I, I mean, I, 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 one thing I also really liked about it was that Google seemed to put a strong preference on battery life. So hmm. they didn't try to make it unreasonably thin at the cost of battery life. And, and it was encouraging to see a lot of positive comments about the battery life. I, I'm hopeful that hmm. Apple will, you know, ditch its obsession with making everything thinner at the expense of battery life. Mm. Uh, and, it's not, and it's funny because it's not really at the expense. I mean, it's no, not like it's, any of their devices are going time, down right? in battery life, but they're not going up right. the way they could. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, they seem to all the battery life gains seem to be plowed back into making it thinner, as right. it were. So, yeah. kind of maintaining parity rather than necessarily improving over time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's interesting too. I mean, there's this new Dell laptop that just came out, um, and there were a couple of reviews of it in a couple of different places that suggested it's now you know on par with, if not better than, the MacBook Air. Um, you know, even from reviewers like Joanna Stern at the Wall Street Journal, who's been very critical of Windows Ultrabooks. Um, and some others as well, um, and including on battery life. And so it seems, you know, Apple's had this huge advantage really on battery life across laptops and, you know, iPads um, in the tablet space. Uh, and it seems to be eroding at the moment. Others are catching up now, um, you know, whether it's Intel's making the, these advances uh, and making them available to others, others are figuring out other optimizations and so on to make that possible. But, you know, both the Pixel C and the Dell coming out this week, at least the reviews coming out this week, um, and in both cases, kind of catching up on or even exceeding battery life for equivalent Apple products. So, you know, battery life is no longer such an advantage for Apple products as it has been in the past. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens next year. Um, the MacBook is a it is sort of Apple's next signal flare, kind of of where they're mm-hmm. headed, I think, in the laptop right. space. And it'll be interesting to see what happens, especially as, you know, the 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 next generation of Intel chips come out, um, which I think should make a huge difference in battery life because that seems to be a big emphasis of how they work. So, Yeah, no, it'll be very interesting to see how that goes. Um, yeah, more broadly, when we were talking before we started recording, you kind of had a thought about everyone struggling with tablet operating systems. Do you want to talk through that a little bit? Well, it's true, isn't it? I, I mean... You know, Microsoft has this one Windows approach, which means, you know, no compromises means lots of compromises. Right. And that's, and so that's the problem, you know, with the Surface. Uh, the, the Pixel C problems are abundant when it mm-hmm. comes to the OS. I mean, it really just isn't even designed for a tablet at all. It's, yeah. it, in fact, it seems like most of the sort of tablet oriented features of this are just the result of, Google making Android adaptable to multiple screen sizes, and that's sort of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Apple has just barely, with iOS 9, started coming out with more tab- tablet-centric um, elements to iOS, like split screen, slide over, and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah, I think it's all, I think it all has to do with the fact that nobody has taken tablets seriously as a productivity device. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always been this sort of, you know, this sort of counter argument to that idea where people say, hey, look at this amazing creative thing somebody made with an iPad. 
But the truth is, those were usually the exception, not the rule of how right. people they were notable primarily because they were exceptions. Yeah, exactly, and that's why people talked about them is because nobody else was doing stuff like this with an iPad. Right. Um, I think I think Microsoft with the Surface blaze the trail for tablets to be a productivity device and and you know you may have quibbles with how microsoft has has approached that but the point is they've mm -hmm. sort of said look you can have a tablet that is what that is what you use for work every day right. and apple's caught up a little bit on that this year um mm -hmm. and i think that's where the problem lies i think nobody's it, although android's problems with tablets go deeper than that than the productivity thing but mm -hmm. but the but the idea is that it we haven't been using tablets for serious work as a whole or on an average. And mm -hmm. I think people are still trying to figure out exactly how this would operate. I think that's why yeah. keyboards are all sort of like just okay or a little bit weird because we're mm -hmm. so accustomed to keyboards when it comes to having to, you know, write a report, you know, right. or something like it. Mm -hmm. And so I, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next year and, and to see how well, any of these companies can solve that tablet OS problem because as it, as it stands now, every major tablet manufacturer essentially imported the OS to tablets from some other platform. Right. From right. phones or from, yeah. for, from, desk, or from laptops. Yeah, no, it's up to you. And we've talked about that before in the context of, you know, Microsoft, Windows, and the Surface. Um, I'm trying to remember which episode it was. I think it was back in uh, episode 18, uh, we talked about Microsoft event where they announced uh, the Surface Pro 4 and the Surface Book. Um, but, you know, the and even before that, I think we talked about where Windows 10 came from in an earlier um, episode. But, you know, the whole point is here that, that Microsoft didn't get into this that way deliberately. They kind of got into the Surface that way because they saw what was happening with tablets where they were adopting smartphone operating systems where Microsoft had zero market share, essentially, uh, rather than desktop operating systems where Microsoft had majority market share, and they wanted to change that. And so they took their desktop OS, Windows, down to the tablet form factor with the Surface. And, um, you know, because that device had historically been designed for, um, uh, sorry, the OS had historically been designed for devices with keyboards, the Surface had to come with a keyboard and so on, and that led to this sort of strangely compromised device form factor. Um, but it turned out that some people actually really liked that idea. Um, and so even though the original iteration of it wasn't very good, they're now on the fourth, and they're getting really quite good at this point. Uh, and that, in turn, now is driving, you know, what you're talking about with, you know, Apple with the iPad Pro, uh, Google now with the Pixel C, you know, this kind of, okay, if people really do want to use their tablets as replacements for laptops, what do we need to give them to be able to do that? And in most cases, it's hardware that they've been given rather than software. Right. Apple's done a little bit of software optimizations with split screen and so on. Uh, and obviously, the iPad Pro gives you a larger screen where that works really well. Um, but even there, you know, some of the keyboard optimizations that we talked about in the last couple of weeks are not ideal. Um, and, you know, again, they've kind of tried to squeeze an existing operating system into that new form factor. Um, and, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the iPad Pro, but, you know, my feeling is that Apple would have been better off creating a new operating system for the iPad Pro. Not an entirely new one, necessarily. You certainly could have used iOS as the core of it. But just as they created new operating systems or at least rebadged iOS uh, for the watch and for the new Apple TV, I feel like they should have created, you know, a pad OS or whatever for the iPad Pro. And something I wrote about for Tech Pinions last week. Um, but, you know, I feel like the drawback to everybody ad adapting existing operating systems with tablets is none of these operating systems are truly optimized for this new breed of devices. Right. And, and they shouldn't be assuming that 
an existing operating system they happen to have lying around is going to be the answer. Um, you know, that they, they should really be, to some extent, working from scratch to figure out if this is a, a category we really want people to take seriously, what is the right operating system? What's the mix of elements and UI and everything else that we need to make this work? And I feel like all of them still need work on that. Well, and just two thoughts on that. One, if you step back, it should be really strange that an entire product category, an entire platform category wouldn't have its own custom-made OS. Exactly. I mean, that's bizarre. Uh, it, it would be like Apple trying to, but but I think I think the reason this happened. This is the second thought, is because tablets are so much like the the products where their OS is drawn from, right? I mean they're they're not phones, but they're like phones in the sense that they have touchscreens, right? That they're that they that they use this interface, and they're not laptops, but they're like laptops in the sense that mm -hmm. they're that they're portable, right? And yeah, and they have larger screens and phones, and I think that's been the problem. I also think, interestingly enough, that designing—I think—designing a tablet OS is a harder thing than designing a tablet itself. I think designing a tablet itself really is just making, you know, a phone bigger or a laptop smaller, right, with a touchscreen. I mean, this is all just essentially. Re Slabs of glass with a case around exactly. It it's reconfiguring yeah. technology that they already have and are good at, mm -hmm. um, but. But, but designing a tablet OS from scratch, that that's, strikes me as a lot harder. And I think it explains right. why we don't have a, a custom-made tablet OS yet. Mm -hmm. Whether or not one's coming, uh, it seems like Apple would be the likeliest candidate for that. We'll see if they do it. I wouldn't be yeah. surprised you know, at WWDC next year in June to see mm -hmm. an announcement for a tablet OS, especially with everything Tim Cook has said about the tablet you know, being the, the future of computing. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. I, I wouldn't be surprised about that at all. Cool. Okay, any last thoughts on the Pixel C? No, it's encouraging. I think competition in the tablet space is a great thing for everybody who uses them. And I think the problem with Android tablets all along has been that nobody's made really great hardware in that space. That people have made mm -hmm. adequate hardware, but not the kind that you get excited about. And right. I think hardware-wise, the Pixel C is exciting and interesting. And and you know that that competition benefits everybody. Yeah, and I think the other thing is interesting to note is there has been competition in the tablet market, but it's been almost exclusively at the low end. Right. Um, you know, early on, I think there were a lot of responses to the iPad, um, and they were mostly you know really subpar, and so they didn't do well at all. And when Android tablets really started to do well, and Amazon was part of this too, was attacking the low end. You know, coming a couple hundred dollars below the prices of iPads and providing you know, a, a mediocre experience in many cases, but at least, you know, you got what you paid for. Um, and, you know, we've seen, you know, Amazon even go lower on prices, a lot of Chinese vendors and others getting into lower priced Android tablets. It's interesting now to see competition in the tablet market shift back to the high end again. Uh, and yet it doesn't involve either Samsung or Amazon for the most part. Yeah. It involves now Microsoft and Google and Apple, um, you know, these two operating system vendors. So very interesting to see that, that dynamic changing there. Well, and I think this is part of the reason that it's not entirely Google's fault that Android is so far behind on tablets. Um, mm. It's also the, I mean, to say it's the fault is overstating it, but, it, but the third party developers have contributed to this problem. Uh, and yep. it's because there haven't been tablets, there hasn't been a, t a tablet market for them to go after with custom designed versions of their apps. I, right. I mean, to have a tablet app, you know, presumes a market worth going through that effort. And yep. uh, because it's all been low end, you know, people aren't buying very many apps, maybe games, 
right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, mm -hmm. it really is just games and watching Netflix. That's what all those low-end right. tablets are for. Right. And so if you were an app developer d doing anything else, there mm -hmm. really wasn't much of an incentive to design an Android app that's optimized for a tablet. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's true. Okay, well, let's move on to our second topic. Um, a few days ago, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan had uh, their first baby. Um, and in announcing the birth of the baby, they also announced the formation of something called the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and the donation of the vast majority of uh, the family's Facebook shares uh, during their lifetime to uh, philanthropic causes, or what we describe as philanthropic causes. And as you may have read, if you've read anything about this this past week, uh, this has been a somewhat controversial thing. Um, you know, the initial reaction from many people was, wow, isn't this great? And then there was a whole second round of criticism and uh, other observations from people that, that uh, disliked various aspects of this, from um, the structure set up for the initiative to the targets for where the money's going to go to how it's going to be managed and so on and so forth. And so our question of the week this week is whether the Zuckerberg announcement is really philanthropic or should be considered so. And uh, Aaron will talk in a minute about his background here and, and some of the work that he does in this area. But um, Aaron, why don't we start with talking about uh, just some basics on uh, nonprofits, uh, the tax law, how, how this stuff works together, because that's been a major sort of focus for some of the, the criticisms and the analysis of this this past week. Yeah, and there's actually been a lot of misunderstanding relative to that. There's actually a New York Times op-ed on this that I will be using in class as an example of common misunderstandings. <laughs> about right, okay, good. Yeah. And so it, just a little bit of my background. So one of the things I do um, here in uh, the Marriott School of Management is I, I teach and work in philanthropy. Um, I'm the advisor, faculty advisor and founder for a program we have here called Grantwell. And in Grantwell, we have students that do consulting projects for large donors, typically foundations. Um, over the last eight years, our students have advised a little over $30 million total in, in giving, which is pretty awesome uh, experience for our students. It's, it's been a really fun thing. Um, and I also, in a, before I was, before I taught here at BYU as an attorney and one of my main practice areas was in nonprofit law. Now, um, with that background, uh, it's important to understand a few basics before we get into the details of what uh, Zuckerberg and Chan have done. Um, and so there, there are essentially four basic concepts I want to cover. Uh, the first one is about how tax basis works when you have shares that have increased in value. Because that's that's the the vast majority of Mark Zuckerberg's wealth is tied up in Facebook in shares of Facebook. So um, he has what's called a basis in those shares, which is essentially what he has put into what what he's paid for those shares. Now, as a founder, he didn't pay anything, but there's a special election you can do when you found a company that that uh, sort of changes the way your basis is treated. But if I were to buy shares today, let's say I bought a share of a company that cost me $100. And then a year later, you know, it, it had an awesome year and, and the company doubled in value so that I could sell the share for $200. My basis is the $100 I spent and the extra $100 in profit I get from selling it is called a capital gain. And so that's the first principle and concept that's important to understand is you have in everything in everything you own except for cash, you have a basis and then you have what's called a capital gain if it's not worth more than what you paid for it. 
Another concept to cover is how tax deductions work and how charitable contributions work specifically when it comes to tax deductions. So a tax deduction, for those who aren't clear on the concept, is essentially a reduction of the income that the IRS will use when they decide how much tax you owe. So if I made $100,000 in a year, if I gave 10% of it to charity, I would get a tax deduction equivalent to $10,000. And so my taxable income reduces to $90,000 is the basic idea. And all charitable contributions to what are called 501c3 organizations are deductible from your taxes up to certain limitations. And um, the, the, the highest of those limitations is 50% of your income in a given year. So if I had $100,000 and I gave all of it to charity, depending on which mix of charities I gave it to, the most I could deduct from my taxes was $50,000 for that year. So I'd still pay tax on the other $50,000 even though I gave it to charity in that year. I can carry forward my the excess of my charitable donation that I didn't use up in one year. I can carry that forward a few more years. Um, but eventually it would run out if I didn't use it and set it against my income in those subsequent years. 501c3s are important to talk about just briefly. These are what the IRS considers charitable organizations. To get this tax status, you actually have to apply. Uh, so you send in an application to the IRS, and then if you meet the qualifications, you get this status. The benefit of being a 501c3 is that donations that you get are tax deductible to the donor. And then the other advantage is that if you have a net income at the end of the year as a 501c3, you don't have to pay income tax at the corporate level. Foundations are a special category of 501c3. Um, and what's unique and interesting about foundations, like the Gates Foundation, for example, is that foundations by law have to give away at least 5% of their assets every year. And that's an important detail for us to pick up later. Mm -hmm. The last thing to talk about that's a basic is what an LLC is. An LLC is something like a corporation it's called a low, it's called a limited liability company it's something like a corporation except that it has a lot more flexibility and lower sort of formalities required to keep it running they're they're great for small businesses they're great for partnerships um llc's are used all over the place and the most important thing to know about llc's is for tax purposes they generally are what we call pass-through entities what that means is the llc never owes any tax but all the owners in the LLC, all the, so whatever gains or tax consequences happen at the LLC level, pass down to the owners and, and then apply at the owner's individual level. And that's a big deal, too, for a reason we're going to talk about in a minute. Right. Great. Okay. So, yeah, my business is an LLC, right. so I'm a single, single employee, self-employed. Um, and my business in LLC, and just for exactly those reasons, it's a very simple kind of company to run. You really don't need a lot of help to do it. And uh, you essentially file your personal taxes at the end of the year along with the LLC taxes. So right. very straightforward. But obviously other benefits that you're going to talk about too. So so how does all this relate to, to what um, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan are doing with this new initiative? So let's talk about the details of what they've announced. We don't know a ton. I don't think they know a lot, mm -hmm. to be honest. I think this right. is all very that's, aspirational that's at this point. one of the challenges, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So they've promised that they're going to give away 99% of their Facebook shares um, over their lifetimes. Um, that means they're not donating cash, so they're not actually saying we're going to sell the shares, although that may happen over the, over the years. They may sell the shares so that they have the cash to do something with it. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's what's being dedicated is essentially Zuckerberg's ownership in Facebook. Right now, 
that's a, that's worth about forty six billion dollars. So this is mm-hmm. a huge chunk. Um, in fact, if they were just to donate all of this today, it would be the largest single charitable donation that's ever been made, ever. Um, right. The the prior record holder on that was Warren Buffett when he dedicated close to thirty billion to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, they've said that so they've put this money into an LLC, um, and uh, that's part of the controversy, and we can talk about that in a minute. Um, but that that's where it's all going to be going is into this LLC, and they've said that the purpose of all of this is twofold to advance human potential and to promote equality. Now, if those feel really loose and undefined to you, that's deliberately the case. Oh, yeah. uh, the truth is most charitable organizations have sort of general goals rather than mm-hmm. very specific mm-hmm. targets. Yeah. They, I mean, they develop their specific targets, but but as a result of being guided by these sort of bigger values. And so advancing human potential and promoting equality um, are going to be sort of their guiding stars which is not atypical in the philanthropy world. Um, They're not putting all of it in now, although they have said that they're going to put in at least a billion dollars a year for the next three years. Um, In fact, I think they said they're going to give away a billion dollars a year for the next three years. Uh, Incidentally, that is a huge, huge, huge amount of giving. Um, Giving away a billion dollars in a single year is going to be terribly hard. Um, because uh, that's a lot of money. And if you're going to give it away effectively, it's going to take a ton of expertise, a ton of time, a ton of research. Um, because it's an LLC, uh, there are a few things to keep in mind here. The LLC can always donate shares to charity. Um, and if it decides to do that, uh, then the charitable but like the, the tax deduction will pass through to Zuckerberg and Chan. So they'll be the ones who who will claim the tax deduction on their taxes. Um, the LLC can always sell the shares. If they do sell the shares, they're going to have a capital gain to pay because the basis that, that Mark Zuckerberg has passes through to the LLC. So if the LLC, the LLC takes the same basis. So if he made a you know 100% return on his shares, there was, that, there would still be a capital gain at the LLC level that passes down to Mark and, uh, and Priscilla. Um, and what's interesting as an LLC is it can invest in other companies. So it can take cash and it doesn't just have to give it away. It can actually like buy ownership and other entities. And I think that's actually part of their plan in terms of the social impact they're trying to achieve. I think they're planning to both be giving and investing. To accomplish right. their and including in companies, right? Which is something that a charity couldn't do. Yeah, well, a charity can invest um, mm-hmm. in other companies, but there are limitations in the ways it can invest, especially if it's a foundation. Okay. It can't invest in really risky uh, ventures um, mm-hmm. like startups. Okay. Um, that usually violates a statute that exists at every state in every state at the state level um, that requires prudential financial management and. Uh, and this is this wouldn't be very prudent um, for for them to be investing in startups as a foundation with charitably dedicated dollars, and so the LLC gives them the flexibility to still do that. So they can invest in crazy things. I mean, mm-hmm. like for example, if if some guy came to them and said he figured out how to inoculate, you know, against malaria, um, and with this entirely, you know, brand new procedure. Well, obviously, that sounds really exciting, but also really risky. Um, mm-hmm. 
and that sort of investment. Foundations technically can make those sorts of investment, but they are they're they're fraught with a, a much greater deal of regulation and scrutiny. And mm-hmm. so, um, so the LLC that the, that uh, that uh, that Zuckerberg and Chan have established is capable of making investments with a lot more flexibility. Right. Okay. So, so that that sort of helps to explain why they're doing things the way they are. Are there any other reasons why they seem to be taking this particular approach with the LLC, the amounts that yeah. they've kind of committed to, and so on? Well, it, flexibility is, I think, the biggest upside here. They literally can do all kinds of things with the money that they couldn't do if they were a charity, um, because there are limitations. Once you get that five hundred one c three status from the IRS, because uh, they could have started a foundation and poured all their wealth into it. Uh, but once you've done that, there are all sorts of limitations on how they operate. And without getting into too much detail, it mostly just has to do with spending your money in what the IRS would consider a non-charitable way. It also mm-hmm. limits their – if they were to be a 501c3, it would also limit their ability to engage in advocacy. Um, 501c3s are only supposed to engage in what's called insubstantial lobbying, and they can't endorse any political candidates. Uh, if a 501c3 mm-hmm. were to do that, they could lose a tax exempt status. And so um, being an LLC means they could endorse a candidate, they could lobby like crazy, they can do all kinds of other, you know, advocacy-oriented things. And they've actually announced that that's part of what they have in mind is advocacy. Right. Okay. So there's a ton of flexibility there. Another benefit upside here is it leaves open the door for more innovative approaches. Um, there's a big movement in what's called social entrepreneurship, and it's the idea of taking business skills, especially entrepreneurship skills, innovative skills, and applying them to solving the world's you know, problems. And this space of social entrepreneurship acknowledges the fact that the profit motive can be compelling and useful when it comes to solving problems. And, what's, and that would include, for example, taking investors instead of donated dollars. Um, there's a lot more capital out there if you're raising money from investors than if you're raising money from, say, foundations, by, mm-hmm. by, by, by orders of magnitude. That's actually one of the limitations on philanthropy is that there's a lot less money to give away than there is money to be invested. And right. so the, because this investment door is basically opened wide, there's a lot mm-hmm. more room for them to invest in innovative strategies. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're aware, obviously, my dad's work in in starting one of the first venture philanthropy funds in Europe. Um, You know, and the whole rationale there is that there are all these people that have lots of money that they want to either give or invest into philanthropic efforts, but they just don't have the time or the inclination to figure out where it should go and then to make sure that it's used wisely and managed effectively. And so venture philanthropy, the whole principle is that these funds... Uh, in a very similar way, sort of analogous way to venture capital. They kind of collect these funds and then invest them very wisely into these. Often they are charities. In some cases, they are actually businesses as well, but that do some kind of social good. Right. And, and it's just kind of that whole model makes me think, you know, here's Mark Zuckerberg. He, he's running Facebook. He's just announced he's going to take a couple of months off for paternity leave. Where is he going to find the time to, <laughs> to do all of that himself? You know, surely he wants somebody to do that on his behalf. And, you know, that's one of the big advantages of foundations with permanent staffs and so on. And some of the other existing sort of structures and organizations that exist to manage this kind of thing. You know, it could have just given all the money to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as well, right. just like Warren Buffett did, I guess. So, um, you know, what, what, why go this way? What, what are some of the drawbacks to, to what he's done here? Well, um, it depends on your perspective whether or not this is a drawback. Um, I, I, to Mark Zuckerberg, is definitely an upside. 
is that he can um, hire and hire whoever, whomever he wants and pay whatever he wants to pay them. Mm-hmm. In the if you're if you're a five hundred one c three, the IRS scrutinizes the amount you pay people, and although there's no like fixed limit on how much you can pay an individual. There are rules against what the IRS calls excess benefit transactions, where if you're paying people above market wages or what they think of as market mm. wages, you can they can actually they have the power to penalize the recipient of those wages as well as all of the managers and board members that were involved in approving that. And they're they're pretty severe penalties actually that scare off charities. And the result is that there are a lot of uh, there's there's a constant there's that plus social pressure to put downward pressure on wages in the nonprofit sector. And uh, and what's nice for Mark Zuckerberg is none of, he doesn't have to worry about any of that. Now, right. he's not going to be, I mean, $45 billion dedicated to this entity. He It's not going to be him and his wife sitting around on the weekend, like surfing right. the internet to figure out what they're going to do with their money. Although that's going to be happening too. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. Yeah, but what's, gonna, but what's really going to happen is they're going to hire hopefully very capable, talented people. People Mm -hmm. who know a lot about the industry, who know a lot about the things that they care about. Um, And I suspect these are going to be, A, very successful people and also be very innovative people. Um, Mm -hmm. And the kind of people who would be hard to hire away from other, you know, opportunities that that the quality people like this would have. Mm -hmm. So I think they're going to be, I think that they're probably going to end up hiring a very expensive staff. And what's nice for them is they don't have to care what other people think about that. They don't have to care what the IRS thinks about that. They can pay them whatever they think they're worth to get the outcomes they're hoping for. Right, okay. So what's the real public benefit to all this? I mean, we're good to return to our kind of main question here. You know, is this truly a philanthropic effort or is it something different? Yeah, well, actually, one of the interesting benefits to the public is that there's a potential that the public will be getting more tax revenue. <laughs> Which is funny because because the the complaint has been the opposite. This has been portrayed by people who don't understand the tax code as a massive tax dodge by by right. by Zuckerberg and Chan, and and the opposite is true. By putting the money into the LLC, they're not getting any of the benefits that they would get by donating to charity. If they had put mm-hmm. the money into a foundation, they'd be getting huge tax benefits. And and the way the tax code works, because we have a graduated tax scale. Donations made by the wealthy are subsidized more than donations made by lower-income individuals. I mean, the government gives mm-hmm. a bigger tax break to, to donations from wealthy people. And, uh, and and that's not necessarily deliberate. It's just sort of the sort of funky outcome of how our tax code mm-hmm. is structured. But uh, so one of the benefits of the public for the public is that there, is that the federal government and states are and, and California and, and wherever else they're paying taxes, they're going to be drawing more tax revenue out of this than if it was all just given to charity. Um, right. I, I think uh, another upside is that because this because this structure allows for a lot of flexibility and hopefully some great innovations that come out of it. Obviously, we'll benefit from that as a public. I think an upside as well is that it's going to inspire more philanthropy. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg specifically has said that he was inspired by what Bill Gates has done with his foundation. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be 20 or 30 years from now another billionaire or multi-billionaire who's going to credit Mark Zuckerberg as having been his or her inspiration. And I think that's mm-hmm. cool. Um, now, there is downside, however, for the public, and this gets into a few um, sort of technical details. One is there's going to be a lot less transparency. Um, LLCs don't have to publicly report 
a, a, a stitch of information. They don't have to tell us what they're doing. And, um, and that's not true for 501c3s. Um, the, in fact, a 501c3 files an annual tax filing called a 990, and that's a public record. The, right. the, you can look them up on guidestar.org and look up the... And those tax filings have a ton of information, including, for example, the salary of the, of the five highest paid employees that are making more than $100,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's a big miss there's a big lack of transparency that uh, has people concerned and and this ties into the second drawback which is the the, the sort of power of influence that um, Zuckerberg and Chan are going to have in the way that they're using their wealth compared to if they had given it to say a foundation mm-hmm. um, now if they had started a foundation. You know, most foundations have to have, in most states, a, a, a charitable foundation has to have at least three board members. Presumably, Zuckerberg and Chan would be two of the three. So they would still have a lot of control. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also the requirement that a foundation gives away 5% a year. That goes away. Um, right. So they could hold on to it for a really long time, and we can't say anything about it. Um, there's mm-hmm. also the influence that comes just by being as wealthy as they are. When you have a lot of money, you throw your weight around. This right. has actually been a complaint with the way Mark Zuckerberg has already done some of his philanthropy, such as mm-hmm. uh, the $100 million grant to schools in Newark, New Jersey. Um, you know, his philanthropy over in Newark sort of picked what it thought, he, you know, they picked winners. They chose schools that they thought deserved this and, and needed help growing, and then there were other schools left in the dust as a result. And the truth mm-hmm. is that ticked off a lot of people. And I think you're going to be right. hearing complaints about this wealthy philanthropy from the Zuckerbergs, mm-hmm. but this is not new. This has been happening for over a hundred years, back when the robber barons like Carnegie, you know, were engaged in philanthropy. Um, they're just, you know, with all of that money comes a ton of influence, and it may not be stuff the public wants. But if Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. and Priscilla Chan want it, then it's gonna get it's gonna happen because there's money to pay for it. Right, and that kind of outsized influence that comes with that amount of money. Right. So, um, personally, I, I mm. don't think the downside outweighs the upside of the approach they're taking. Um, I think the truth is that in philanthropy generally, there's, there's a traditional way of doing things, and there are a lot of people who adhere to the traditional way of doing things as though it's the best way. And the reality is, is a lot of philanthropy is the way it is simply because of the way our tax code is structured. Right. Which is not, I mean, and it's not like when Congress was designing these incentives, they thought all the way through what they, what they would mean. And so there are all these sort of limitations and this false sense of nobility that surrounds philanthropy, traditional philanthropy. And um, I don't think it serves the public well because there's a lot of creative, there's a lot of creativity that gets thrown out the window in the process. And these limitations of traditional philanthropy aren't getting us, these limitations are preventing philanthropy from getting us as far as it could. Now, this is this is coming from somebody who works in philanthropy and right. teaches in philanthropy. Um, I'm excited about this. I'm excited mm-hmm. about what they're doing. I, I don't think the public is gonna be worse off necessarily, although there's, there's always potential downside for any philanthropic effort. Mm-hmm. That's another thing that people ignore. And I've actually, with a couple of co-authors, done a little bit of research into that. When people are considering investments, they're always willing to look at downside. But when people are considering donations, they never considered potential downside. Well, I shouldn't say never, but right. rarely. 
They just mm-hmm. assume that their donation will, at a minimum, break break even when it comes to social right. impact, if not make the world a better place. And the truth is, donations can have negative impacts all the time. But people have this sort of lopsided optimism when it comes to charitable money. And I think the approach that the Zuckerbergs are taking opens them up to a more thoughtful like consideration of potential downside. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see to what extent they volunteer some of what's not required, you know, right. so they don't have to file an annual public report, but maybe they'll file one publicly, um, just, just voluntarily. Um, you know, maybe they'll, f- I'm sure they'll flesh out details on how, you know, what the guiding principles are and what they'll invest in. Cause they're going to want to solicit, you know, pitches essentially for whatever better word, right. they're going to want people to come and ask for donations, you know, if they're working in fields that they're interested in investing in. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure there'll, there'll be some more openness coming. And, you know, ultimately, you know, this 46 billion, it's already gone up a bit, I guess, from what it was. Um, and it will continue to rise in value as Facebook stock does. But, you know, this is a huge, you know, voluntary um, donation, essentially, to causes that this family cares about. It may not be the same causes everybody else cares about. The exact way they spend it may not be the exact same way somebody else would spend it. But, you know, on balance, it's hard to imagine that it's not going to do good rather than harm. Um, you know, even if there are some drawbacks to the specific way that they're going about it. Yeah. And, you know, there's one other technical detail that I think is fascinating here. Um, there's a there's a space now called impact investing. And the idea is taking investments, but 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 orienting them toward organizations that are generating social impact. Mm. And it's we have a hard time always measuring exactly how much money is being dedicated to impact investing. But by one measure, this this dedication of their wealth could double the amount of total money in impact investing right now. <laughs> I wow. mean, it's, okay. it's yeah. it'd yeah. be a huge, huge change. And I work with students that are launching social ventures all the time. And it's mm-hmm. interesting because if they're trying to get money from investors, they have the problem of being a social venture, which is if you go to traditional investors, um, they don't quite get the social thing. Like you talk about mm-hmm. the social impact you're having, and because they care about return on investment, they're they're either confused or discouraged by that. And just right. And then, uh, but because you're not a nonprofit, you can't get donations from foundations or other mm. grant making organizations. And so there's sort right. of this funding desert right now for young yeah. social startups. And mm-hmm. um, this, I, I'm 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 assuming that they're going to be heading into the impact investing space. I think it's likely actually yeah. based on the, their choice of an LLC. And this has the potential to infuse a huge amount of cash into impact investing, which is frankly really exciting. And I think we're going to see some cool yeah. things come out of it. Yeah, great. Well, thank you, Aaron. As always, it's great, great job sort of uh, helping to talk us through all of that stuff. Um, we'll finish up with our last topic, which is that Apple has reportedly decided to shelve the long-reported plans for creating some kind of t- subscription television service. Um, you know, it's been assumed that it would be a sort of a pay TV equivalent, something for, for cord cutters of, of traditional pay TV services. Um, I think it was Bloomberg that first uh, reported um, directly. Before that, it was uh, Les Moonves from CBS who mentioned at a conference that he was uh, part of the negotiations and that they appeared to have stopped for the time being. Um, so it's just come out in the last sort of 24 to 48 hours or so as we're recording this. And then this morning, Wednesday morning, Peter Kafka at Recode reported 
what were purportedly the reasons behind this. And this sort of helped to explain something that I'd found puzzling, which was, you know, these companies all negotiate rights all the time. It's not like, you know, ultimately you don't eventually come to an agreement. And Apple should have been able to come to one just as Dish did with Sling TV and Sony did with its own equivalent product and so on. Um, what it seems the hang-up is, is that Apple wants to create a base tier here that is what's referred to in the traditional pay TV business as a skinny bundle. So a much smaller bundle of channels um, that eschews the normal uh, packaging up of channels from the same content provider that characterizes most of the pay TV bundles in the US. So rather than carrying all of Fox's channels, you'd only cover uh, carry the Fox broadcast channel, for example. And rather than carrying every single ESPN channel, you'd only carry maybe ESPN One or even none of the ESPN channels. You just cover ABC from Disney uh, and, and leave the other ESPN and other sports channels for a sports tier or something like that. And it seems Eddie Key was very keen to keep the overall price to around $30 and therefore wanted to kind of break apart some of those traditional packages that have always been negotiated by the major content owners. And it seems the content owners were resistant to that. And and it's that that's been the sticking point in these negotiations and the reason why this has been shelved now. Um, you know, my first reaction to this was actually personal disappointment. Um, I've really been looking forward to having the option of buying something like this from Apple. And so the fact that it's not going to happen anytime soon, apparently, is, is personally disappointing to me. I've been looking forward to it. I've, I've wanted to ditch the various other stopgap solutions that I've been using and have something that was designed for the devices that I use first and foremost and not sort of a second, uh, secondary consideration for, for something that's designed for, say, a traditional set-top box first. Um, and was missing some of the content and functionality and so on. So I'm disappointed there. The other reason I'm disappointed is that I'm not convinced this would have been a huge uh, market share grab for Apple in this space. I think it would have actually been quite a stiff uphill battle. But I think what it would have done is finally put some pressure on the traditional pay TV providers to start to do some of the things that I think they know they need to do, but they're, they're lacking any immediate impetus to do so. And it's things like breaking apart the bundle into more digestible chunks and working with the content providers to allow them to do that. It's also things like uh, porting their... Uh, set-top box uh, interfaces onto devices like the Roku and Apple TV and other devices like that that people already have that they already own so that people wouldn't have to pay for these clunky old set-top boxes. Um, you know, I, I recently signed up for Comcast service and, you know, they sent me a 13-pound box in the mail. It's a Motorola set-top box that's probably about... 15 years old at this point, at least the model and the interface is to match. You know, it looks like it's from the 1990s. Um, you know, that's kind of the standard right now, and yet I'm having to pay every month for the privilege of having that box sitting around in my home when all I really want to do is use apps on, you know, Apple TV. They do have apps for my iPhone and iPad and, and, uh, and web apps as well, but they don't have one for these TV boxes because they don't want that direct kind of substitution. But it's that kind of mentality that I really hoped would be broken up by a player like Apple finally getting into this business. So I'm disappointed on a personal level, but also disappointed I think it'll take a little bit longer for some of those changes to happen as well. Aaron, any thoughts on all this? Yeah, I also am disappointed. I've mentioned on the show that we're getting an Apple t the new Apple TV for my kids for Christmas. And obviously that's mostly for them to be able to play games and do other fun stuff like that. But I was hopeful that at the beginning of next year, Apple would announce a TV service. I'm not writing it off. Um, it it uh, This isn't the first hiccup that um, right. Apple that's been reported in the press. I don't know if you remember over the summer, but there, in fact, we talked about this on the podcast that there were reports of Apple getting hangups with local broadcast networks because right. 
the local, the, you know, the affiliate stations all have to buy into this too. So that way, if I'm watching NBC or ABC, you know, here in Utah, I'm watching the local ABC instead of like Chicago's or something like that. Um, right. I, I, it's interesting that that didn't show up at all, that nobody's really talked about that in a while. And it's either because Apple didn't even bother getting that far because of this, what seems like an earlier hang up, right? About exactly mm -hmm. what goes into the package. Or it could be that Apple, you know, found solutions for that problem, but now has this issue to deal with. Um, I, I think what's interesting is, from the competition side, the problem is there's not enough competition on the with content. I mean, there's there's plenty of competition with technology. I mean, in fact, the only reason that you still have that crappy Comcast box is because Comcast has unique control over the content that the mm -hmm. box delivers and therefore they can foist right. the box on you. And, yep. and there, you know, we just need to see increasing competition on the content side. Unfortunately, that part, man, just feels like it's coming so slowly. You know, mm -hmm. HBO has its over the top service now, which is exciting. Um, there's still no like real over the tops, over the top service when it comes to sports, you know, there are rumors about ESPN pondering this, but I don't think there's a ton of incentive mm -hmm. for them to do it yet. Right. Um, Netflix is producing original content. Amazon is producing original content. And that's exciting, but um, but the problem is that that content isn't sufficient to be a full substitution for what you know all the cable channels and major networks are producing. Mm. And as long as there's not enough competition on the content side, um, they they hold the majority of the cards. You know all these all these networks, and that that's the part that's frustrating for me because it just feels like. They don't have to care as much about the way people get it because uh, they know that people, you know, will show up as long as they're not totally egregious in the terms that they set. Mm -hmm. I, I would love, I, I think it's really fun to consider Apple getting into content production. Um, I, I have a hard time imagining it happening just because that's so mm -hmm. far outside of Apple's, you know, core abilities but then again they're making a car <laughs> so, so <laughs> and they have a radio station that's right so who's so yeah. who's to say there's not going to be i mean they do you know that they who's to say they won't someday be a, a studio i don't know i think that'd yeah. be really cool if they, yeah, if they did it i whether or not they do it better than anybody else i don't know but mm -hmm. um but I, I think it's interesting right because netflix started as a tech company and now it's becoming a content producer amazon yeah. is a tech company retailer and now they're becoming a content producer and yeah. it seems like a space that you can move into without huge barriers to entry it's really just about acquiring the right kind of talent and for that you need money and right. nobody's mm -hmm. got more money than apple yeah and even then you just pay other people to make it anyway right. so the fact is you're, you're largely leveraging existing organizations rather than having to necessarily hire all your own talent either yeah, so, that's right. yeah i mean i think the short of apple actually producing its own service here i think the next best thing is that you start to be able to buy all this content from the individual owners through you know the apple tv or through your iphone or whatever and obviously hbo now has pioneered that model i think that model could easily be applied to other content owners as well and arguably it might even be more profitable for apple because they've been taking a essentially a cut just for um, billing um, rather than you know the largely sort of pass-through revenue model that the pay TV providers traditionally have where they, they get a lot of revenue but they pass most of it through as cost to content owners. Um, so I think that that would be interesting and then you know Siri is the kind of universal search for, for finding that content on the Apple TV uh, or the you know, spotlight slash Siri search on the on the iPhone for example. 
but uh, it's still, you know, that feels still quite fragmented and feels like it would be quite a disjointed experience compared to a sort of a single unified service. But that might have to be the way that things go. I, and I think I'll probably write about this at some point, I, continue, I keep coming back to the idea that Apple could buy Netflix, um, which I think, you know, maybe sounds ridiculous on the face of it, but I think it's fascinating. You know, it's, uh, Apple has all this cash. Uh, Netflix is the only kind of global video content uh, service. Um, you know, it's, it's gone to an increasing number of countries over the last few months. It's already profitable. Um, you know, those international activities are going to become more and more so. And it would give Apple a great foothold for expanding a content, a video content service in these countries. You know, it, one of the hardest things is with doing a TV service is it has to be country by country. Um, you know, it starts in the US, it's the most lucrative market by far and certainly the biggest as well. But, you know, with Netflix as a core, you could then take it to other markets too and do some really interesting stuff. Um, you know, it'd be a very unusual acquisition for Apple, a bit like Beats in that it has an existing brand that they wouldn't just get rid of, um, but uh, would be in a very interesting jump into this space if these other negotiations aren't going very well. Um, so that's something I might write about in the next little while too. Yeah. But any last thoughts on all this? I think it's, it, I, I think it'd be awesome. It'd be exciting. I, I, Apple is notorious for its intense focus and the fact that they're trying to make a car right now tells me mm -hmm. that this is still a back burner. This is still at the level of sending Eddie Q off to try to to to, to broker deals. Right. I, I don't think Apple, if Apple has any big ideas, I, I suspect they're not getting a whole bunch of energy or attention right now because making a car is going to be really hard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's finish with that topic there. Um, our last segment for the week, as always, is our weekly pick. And even though Aaron already did our question of the week, it's his turn to do the weekly pick too. So, Aaron, what's your uh, recommendation for something that our listeners might want to check out this week? So, th uh, this is something new to me, but not new to everybody. But if you haven't played the game Broken Age, uh, I just played it recently on the iPad and really, really enjoyed it. So um, Broken Age is made by Double Fine Productions. Um, they had a big cult hit with a game called Psychonauts. And um, the reason Broken Age is notable sort of historically in, in gaming is because it had such a huge Kickstarter. It raised over $3 million um, for its Kickstarter. Um, that actually has something to do with some controversy surrounding the game about you know the use of the money and and the game having to come out in two acts because they ran out of cash and all these other things. But I, without talking about mm -hmm. any of that, I just want to talk about the game. I, it was <laughs> it was really fun. It's sort of one of those classic LucasArts styles point and click adventures where you know you essentially progress by figuring out how to click on the right you know story elements in the right order. You know you get the right inventory item, then you take it to the right person, mm -hmm. and then the story progresses right. because of it. Um, but it's a really delightful story. It's a cool concept in the sense that there are two um, storylines that you can play. Um, in fact, you can bounce back and forth between them. In fact, there are times when progressing in one storyline requires um, doing things in a different storyline. I'm hesitating hmm. to give too much detail because I don't want to ruin the plot. Sure. And that's part yeah. of what makes the game so fun. You know, these really good hmm. adventure games usually have fantastic stories, compelling characters, and that's definitely the case here. Um, there are essentially two characters. One is a, a young girl named Vela Tartine, and uh, she lives in a land where there's a gigantic... I'm not giving away any details, like any plot twist but she she basically lives in a town where all the other towns around her 
offer up their daughters as a sacrifice to this gigantic monster called Magchathra. Um, and then, <clears throat> so that's one storyline. And then the other storyline, you're following um, a, a young boy whose name is Shea Volta. It's actually voiced by Elijah Wood. I forgot to mention that they have a few other people, famous people doing hmm. voice acting, like Jack Black plays a character that's really funny. Um, but anyway, Shea Volta is this boy who lives in a spaceship. And the spaceship's really funny because it's like it's like a kid toy version of a spaceship. He, like like all the controls look like they were designed, you know, by 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 uh, by Playmobil, right? <laughs> and so, right. Um, they and and he's he's growing up. He's a teenager now, but he's treated like a kid. Anyway, that's that's sort of the start. And I don't want to talk anymore about how these storylines intersect and, and any of that because that's that's the fun of encountering it. But but I played the game. I played it with my boys, you know, playing along with me um, a lot of times just because they really enjoyed watching it. It's a really, really cool game. And although it's not new, um, it, it was new to me and really fun. And so if you haven't tried it yet and you're into these kind of thing, definitely give Broken Age a try. It's... It's for sale in the iOS app store, um, and it's a lot of fun. Great. Thanks, Aaron. Well, we'll wrap up there. Um, thank you for listening, as always. We hope you found this interesting and informative. We appreciate your feedback and your reviews on iTunes in particular. Uh, and we will be with you again uh, next week with a whole new set of topics. Thanks. <laughs>